The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. I don't know if you remember any of the stories that your grandparents told you growing up. There's a certain way about a story from a grandparent. There's a certain element to it. There's a character to it. First of all, it's usually a very rich, seasoned story because it comes from a generation, maybe a couple generations back, that it's hard to, to understand what it would have been like. So it's kind of a, got a richness to it. And uh, there's also an element to a grandparent's story that it's got that... Uh, uphill to school, both ways in the snow kind of element to it. You know what I'm talking about? And maybe you might actually be a grandparent uh, now, and you might be now passing on the same types of stories. Oh, we had it so much harder in my day. There's just a a way about a grandparent's story. And one of my grandparents, my great-grandfather, actually uh, had a story that I always remember when I think of this guy. This is a picture of him. Uh, We called him Grandpa Johnson. He's on my mom's side. And he's my great-grandfather, and he lived in the uh, early 19th century, born in 1890. And when he was 19, he became a preacher. And he became an evangelist. And he lived in Wisconsin, but his family was from Denmark. And he would travel back to Denmark to do evangelism services and revivals in the very beginning of the 19th century. And so that's quite a different operation then than it would be now, traveling all the way from Wisconsin to the East Coast. And then he'd get in a ship and he'd take that over to Denmark and then he would preach. And there's a story that he'd tell that I always I'll always remember from him about the conditions when he was there because it was a little bit different. When he would go over there to do these revival services, they wouldn't put him up in a hotel or an inn in the town. He would go just with a stranger who they had found that had a spare bedroom. He would go with that stranger and their family and he would stay in their room in their house. That's just what you did at that time. Now, I don't know about you, but I get nervous selling something on Craigslist to a complete stranger, okay, let alone staying in their house, okay? But that's what he would do. And one of the gambles about that is that you don't know what conditions you're entering into. So he told the story about one night he was exhausted. He had done all these revival services and he was absolutely exhausted. He just wanted to drop into bed and fall asleep. And he gets to this person's house and they take him up to this spare room and he goes into the room, he shuts the door and he just sees the bed and he just drops into bed. He just wants to conk out. He's exhausted. And he's laying there in the bed. He's almost instantly asleep, but right before he falls asleep, he feels something bite him all around. And he's like, oh, I don't know what's crawling in this bed, but I don't even care. I'm just going to go back to sleep. But it starts biting him so much that he realizes there's not just bed bugs in the bed. It's infested with bed bugs. So he decides, okay, I I can't even sleep in in this bed. And so he says, okay, there's a chair. There's a wooden chair uh, across the room. It was against the wall. He's like, I'll just sit in the wooden chair and fall asleep. So he gets out of the bed and he goes and he sits in the wooden chair. Now what happens next? As I recall the story, I have reconfirmed this week, I reconfirmed with my uncle and my mother that this is how they remember the story. There's another element to grandparents' stories and that I know that in their mind it's true, but over the years I think it's stretched a little. 
But either way, if this even part of this is true, I concede the point that, yes, uphill both ways in the snow, it was harder for you back then. The way the story goes is he was sitting in the wooden chair about to fall asleep, and he looks over and he sees the swarm of bedbugs crawling up the wall from the bed, across the ceiling towards him, and down the wall and descending on his body in the bed. Now, I feel them on my scalp right now while I'm talking to you, okay? That is his story. And I, at that point, okay, it was harder then for you than it was now. Whenever I think of my grandpa Johnson, I always remember that story. But that story also represents just how the framework in his mind operated when it came to his relationship with God. It's kind of like a bit, that one story just kind of represents an overall perspective that he had about his relationship with God. It's that he was willing to go through whatever it took because of what he believed. He was willing to go into great sacrifice, great discomfort for what he believed. Now we're looking at a story by Grandpa Abraham, as we're calling him, Grandpa Abraham. His life of Abraham, he tells us these episodes, we have these episodes in Genesis about his life. And each Sunday, we're taking one of these episodes and we're unpacking it. It's like we're together sitting around a campfire with Grandpa Abraham and he's telling us one of his stories. And this story is a really interesting story because out of it, you learn really his framework for how he operates with God. His overall framework for how he operates with God. This is maybe my second favorite story about Abraham. It is where he meets this very mysterious person. My favorite story is actually, we're going to talk about it next week. But this story is, he meets this mysterious person and it has such an impact on him that it shapes the way he interacts with God. Now you might be here and saying, look, I really don't have much of a relationship with God. I'm not even really sure what I believe about God. I'm not really sure. Well, that's okay. This is a great story for you to hear. Because if you were to ever have a relationship with God or consider it, this gives you a framework for what that would look like. Others of you may be saying, okay, I, I've had a relationship with God, but, you know, for a long time, or maybe just recently, but it's gotten a little dried out, or I'm getting a little stuck, or, or I'm just in a season of life where at one point it was really powerful, but I'm not sure anymore. Well, this is great because a lot of times when we learn from this story, we can look back in our life, and it can be an overhaul, literally an overhaul in how we interact with God. This is an important story. I want to take a look at it. It's in Genesis chapter uh, 14. We're going to start in verse 17. Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. If you turn there with me. If you have a Bible, you can open that up. If you have a Bible app, go to Genesis 14, 17. It's also going to be up here on the screens. Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. It says this. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. All right, now let's just get a little background on what's happening here. It says that there was a defeat of another king, and then Abraham, which you'll see in this passage, he goes by the name Abram. His name later changes to Abraham, how we know him, but it's the same guy. It says that Abraham goes out, and after he's defeated these kings, he goes and meets in a place called the Valley of Kings, He goes and he meets with the the king of Sodom. So what's the background here to this story? Abraham lives in a region that's just had a massive, massive battle. There are these kings in the north. 
that just wanted to go and conquer other kingdoms because they wanted to take their stuff, they wanted to take their people captive, they wanted their, their treasures and their herds and their weapons. So this, these kings from the north, they travel south, they were allies, and they come to the south and they start conquering. Well, in the south, a group of kings, including the king of Sodom, a group of kings from the south, they become allies and say, we're not going to let this happen. Let's come together and fight them off. So now you've got the kings from the north fighting the kings from the south, and there's this massive battle. Meanwhile, Abraham, who's in the southern region, Abraham has not got any part of this battle. But there's this huge battle, and the kings from the north beat the kings from the south. They continue their conquest, and they beat all of those kings. They take all their stuff, all their treasures, they take all the spoil, they take a lot of their people as captives, and they head back to the north. Well, this is when Abraham gets involved. Because Abraham's nephew, Lot, we talked about this in the last couple weeks, you you may be familiar, Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and he lived in this city of Sodom. Well, Lot became one of the captives that was taken by this whole army from the north. So now Abraham's invested. He's like, okay, I need to save my nephew, Lot. So he goes through his camp. Now this gives you an idea. You kind of think, is it Abraham and just kind of his family that are kind of wandering around? They're kind of nomadic. Are they just kind of wandering around? Is it like a, a few people, a couple dozen people? you learn how massive this almost tribe that Abraham's traveling with. Because it says that Abraham goes through all of his people to find those who are trained warriors. And it says he he had 318 people with him that were trained warriors. And and with those guys and some some of Abraham's allies, some other powerful people in the region, they go after the kings from the north. They catch up with them. And in the night, they do this kind of delta force in the cover of the night attack. And they defeat the kings from the north. They save Lot. And now think about this. Abraham and his people are now traveling back. And now they have the spoils, not just from the kings that they defeated, the kings from the north, but also all the spoils from all the kingdoms of the south that the kings from the north had conquered. They have all the spoils of all of it. And they're traveling back down. Well, the king of Sodom, one of the kings who had just been defeated, his people had been defeated, comes and he meets with him. They have this meeting. I picture it maybe in this, maybe it's Abraham's tent. It's all ornate. You know, Abraham's pretty wealthy. He has this really ornate tent. Maybe it's got these rugs down. It's in this, maybe it's kind of near an oasis area in this desert region. There's palm trees outside and and there's all of Abraham's guards, these 318 men who just defeated all those kingdoms and they're standing outside. And The king of Sodom, he walks in. He's been defeated. So he's kind of walking in respectfully and maybe enters into this tent and it smells. It's got the spices of smells all around and Abraham's servants are coming in and out and, and the king of Sodom has an agenda. There's a reason he's meeting with him. But before he gets to that, another person enters the tent. We're going to talk about this. This is a very mysterious person. I want to jump ahead for a second. I want to skip over this mysterious person because I want to get to why the king of Sodom is meeting with Abraham. So I want you to jump down to verse 21. Look at what it says. This is Genesis 14, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. Now look at this underlined part up here, this next phrase, it's a key phrase. I want you to read this out loud with me. It says, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram says, I've lifted my hand to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread 
or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enur, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So this is what's happened. Abraham has just defeated the guys who defeated the king of Sodom. King of Sodom comes in, I imagine, pretty humbly and says, look, you have right to all the spoils. You know, could I just have our people back? Could you just give the people back? You have right to all these spoils. And Abram, and Abram says, no, I don't want any of your spoils. You can let my allies, those other guys, they can have what's their share, but I'm not going to take any of it. Because I don't want you to be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Now I want you to think about this with me. Okay, I want you to imagine tomorrow you go and you buy a lottery ticket. Later this week, uh, the, the results from the lottery come out and all the numbers add up and the little bonus thing happens and you're just, I mean, you're like the greatest lottery winner in history. You get contacted with the Florida Lotto and they're like, man, I can't believe it. You've, you've won hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. We'd like to have, the news are going to show up and they're going to interview. You've got, you know, you've just been made incredibly wealthy. Is there any scenario where you would say to the Florida Lottery, you know, I appreciate it, thank you. But I'm just uncomfortable with you going around saying you made me rich, so you keep it. You just keep all the money. Can you imagine that situation at all? Can you imagine, can you imagine caring at all what anybody said? Well, I just don't want people saying I'm a lottery winner, so I don't want the money. Abraham's got access to all the spoils of all of these kingdoms and he said, I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich. I don't want any of it. Why in the world would he say something like this? There's a little key in here. There's a key phrase that he said. He referred to God as the possessor of heaven and earth. That's not only an interesting phrase, it's interesting because it's an extremely provocative unpopular phrase. At that time in history, kingdoms would have their God and the view was that it was a local God. So it was like Baal or Chemosh and it was a local God. It was the God of that city or that region. And so if if countries would go to battle, if kingdoms would go to battle, it would be this kingdom and this king and their gods battling each other. But notice what Abraham said. The God most high, possessor of everything. He's the God over not just this region, not over my land, not over my city, not over my kingdom. He is the possessor of heaven, the universe, and earth. He's the possessor of everything. I don't want him not to get the credit. Okay, man, that's a big move. What could have possibly inspired Abraham to make such a big move, to give away all of that? It's the other person who came to the meeting had such an impact on Abraham. I want to backtrack and see what happened just before that. There was another person who arrived on the scene. Go back with me to verse 18. It says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high. Look at what it says, underlined up here. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, look at this, gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so here's the full scene. Abraham's in his tent, his fancy tent. Servants are going in and out. The king of Sodom comes out. He's about to ask him, hey, can I... 
you, know, you can keep the stuff. Can I just have my people back? But, but, so he's there, he's nervous. He's trying to work out how am I going to pitch this to Abraham? How, Abraham, how am I going to pitch this to him? But before he can start his spiel, another servant comes into Abraham and says, um, there's another king that's here. Oh, really? Okay, well, is he one of the kings that I, that, from the north that I defeated? No, he's not one of those kings. Well, is he one of the kings from the south who had gotten defeated? No, it's not one of those kings. Is it one of the kings that I allied with? No, it's not one of those kings. It's a separate king. He had nothing to do with any of this battle. Okay, who is he? Well, his name is Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. And Melchizedek comes in. He had nothing to do with this whole battle. He comes in, he brings some refreshments, he places them down, and he speaks a blessing over Abraham. Blessed are you. And he says that same phrase, obviously where Abraham picks it up from, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He blesses him and he says, God is the one who delivered your enemies into your hands. It's through God that you had victory. And that impacted Abraham so much, he gave him, do you notice, 10% of all of the spoils. Imagine the king of Sodom. He's like, dude, that's some of my stuff you just, you just gave to that guy. Gave him 10% of all the spoils right off the bat. This was a powerful encounter. Now, who is this guy? He just appears, Melchizedek. You realize you don't hear his name ever again in the book of Genesis? You don't hear his name ever again in the story of Abraham? You just don't ever hear him again? Who is this guy that had such an impact on Abraham, he's this mysterious figure in the Bible. You know, he's one of the most mysterious figures in the entire Bible, and he's one of the most important. Let's dig into these three little verses and see what we know about this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. Well, first of all, he's a, he's a king. Do you notice he's a king? But it says he's also a priest, so he's a king priest. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's kind of break this down. In the Old Testament, there's three main offices it talks about. There's a king, that's pretty obvious. There's a priest and there's a prophet. It breaks down like this. A king, by Old Testament standards, a king rules, it's obvious, rules, but on, the, on behalf of God. He leads the people the way God wants him to lead. The king will rule on behalf of God. Then there's a prophet, and this is also kind of obvious. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. He speaks the words that God's people need to hear for God. He speaks on behalf of God. But then there's also the role of a priest. Now, what is this? This role is a little bit different. We would say that, that a priest atones on behalf of God. Well, what do you mean by atone? That sounds like a fancy church word. What does atone or atonement mean? It's kind of like forgiveness, but it's a little bit more. The priest is making it right for God, and it's typically through a sacrifice. If you lived in Old Testament times, you would say, okay, I messed up, I sinned, I know I broke God's laws, and you'd go to the priest and say, I've sinned, and I've brought this sacrifice, and God had outlined the types of sacrifices you could bring. You'd bring the sacrifice, and the priest is like this mediator between a human and God, and he takes it, and he offers that sacrifice. He kills that lamb or bird or bull. He kills that, and and God would say, okay, I will count that sacrifice as payment for your sins. You're forgiven. It's more than just say, ah, God forgives you. It's I will atone for it so there's something that counts as payment for that sin. Three different roles. And usually they're separate. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, Jesus is presented as a prophet, priest, and king all, as fulfilling all of those roles. But in the Old Testament, they're usually completely separate. You got guys like King David, King Solomon. You may have heard of those guys. They were kings, but they weren't priests. You've got prophets like you maybe heard of Isaiah or Jeremiah. You maybe heard those names before. They were prophets, but they weren't priests. But here we've got this guy named Melchizedek. He's a king and he's a priest. But I want you to look at it. He's a king, but where is he the king of? It's this place called Salem. Do you realize that's the ancient name of a city that you've heard of? 
It's a modern day city, one of the most important cities in the world. You've heard of it. This ancient Salem, it's the ancient name for a city named Jerusalem. He's the king of ancient Jerusalem. Well, that's kind of interesting. What's more interesting is what the word Salem means. It means peace. So he's the king of peace. It's also interesting. Now, I I might be just a Bible nerd, but I find this part very interesting. Okay. He's also the high priest. Now, there's all kinds of priests running around the world at that time. There's priests to Baal. There's priests to all these other gods. But he's a priest to the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Almighty God. Now, think about this. Israel isn't even on the scene yet. They've not even been born. This is before Israel, God's people, has even happened. And all the priests of the temple and all that, that's not even happened yet. They haven't been born. They're going to come from the descendants of Abraham. But you have, in this whole story of how God works with his people, you have some random rogue priest to Yahweh running around on the side. It's fascinating. Melchizedek, he's a priest to God. He's not only a king, he's a priest. But did you notice this? He pours a, he pours a blessing over Abraham speaks it out on behalf of God. He's also serving the role as a prophet. So he's prophet, priest, and king. Who is this guy? A thousand years later, David, King David, will write in one of his famous psalms. They're like songs or poems. And he'll write about the, the promised Messiah that would come. And he'll say that promised Messiah will be a priest forever. And he says this, just like Melchizedek, from the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, a thousand years after that, so 2,000 years later, right after Jesus, the, one of the New Testament writers also talks about Melchizedek. He's, it's after Jesus and he's talking about Melchizedek. I want you to hear this verse. It's fascinating about this guy, this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. Look what it says, it's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Let me just read this to you. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now look at this in verse 3. Jump down to verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What? What in the world does that mean? Stop reading scriptures and just tell me. What are you trying to say, okay? Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. Hey, you remember that guy Melchizedek? He met with Abraham in the wilderness and he blessed him after that whole defeat of the battle. Remember that guy? Yeah, got it. Do you notice there's no reference to a father or mother or birth or a death? He's got no genealogy. It's just kind of like he's a priest and he lived forever. Does that sound like anyone? Someone who's not had a beginning or an end, but he's just a high priest, a mediator between God and man who atones for sins? Does that resemble anyone? He says it resembles the Son of God, Jesus. Who's this mysterious guy? Wait, you're saying... Jesus came, and two, but 2,000 years earlier, you're saying the Son of God entered into creation in flesh 2,000 years before? You're saying Jesus showed up, he met with Abraham, who's the father of all of God's people. I mean, even we're adopted into God's family. You're saying, but Jesus met with him, the fountainhead, and blessed him. You're saying that was Jesus in the flesh? Okay, how come he didn't just say, hey, I'm Jesus? I just didn't say he was Jesus. Well, consider this. If God's not ready to reveal the name Jesus, which he'll eventually reveal first to Mary and Joseph, he's not ready to reveal that name Jesus, what would you call him? Well, I probably wouldn't pick Melchizedek. Okay, that's a little weird. But think about it. The word Melchizedek, you know what it means? It means king 
of righteousness. What else would you call the most perfect person, the only perfect person, the perfectly righteous son of God, but king of righteousness? Not only king of righteousness, king of peace. Prophet, priest, and king. Here meeting with Abraham 2,000 years before he returns on the scene to be that atonement and that sacrifice. Man, I don't know, it seems like a stretch. Well, let me give you one more detail from this text. Did you notice the meal that he served? He brought two things, bread and wine. That's like the calling card of Jesus. 2,000 years later, he'll be sitting around with his disciples and he'll serve them bread and wine and he'll say this, it's the night before he's crucified. He'll take the bread and he'll break it and he'll say, this is a symbol of my broken body. And then he'll pour out the wine or the juice and he'll pass that around and he'll say, this is symbolic of my blood that is shed for you. What is he saying? He's saying, I am the high priest. I'm making a sacrifice for you. It will, God will look down on that sacrifice and say, that counts for your sins. He says, the sacrifice is my body. He's the high priest and the sacrifice dying on the cross. And God looks down at the death of Jesus and says, that sacrifice counts for all the sins of all of humanity. And here's the beautiful thing. He's meeting with Abraham. He's handing the, these elements to him. And he's blessing him and referring to God as the almighty possessor of heaven and earth. Now I want you to look, what is Abraham's reaction? What's our reaction to this? Well, look what Abraham's reaction is to this. His instinctual reaction to this encounter. Now how much of that encounter he appreciated, who knows. But his reaction to this powerful encounter is he instinctively gave him 10% of all of the spoils. Now some of you are sitting here thinking you've been in church some part of your life, and you're like, oh no, is this going to be a tithing sermon? Is that where we're going with this? This whole time, you just just hooked me in with this tithing sermon. Okay, some of you don't know what the word tithe means. Tithe is a church word. It means 10%. And in the Bible, it often talks about bringing to the temple. In the Old Testament, you bring in 10%. And so churches throughout uh, history have talked about, encouraged their people to give 10% of their income to the church. Now, this is not a tithing sermon, and you almost never hear the word tithe here at West Pines, and it's because of passages like this. And that's not necessarily a bad practice. That's, that's an okay measurement to think through, okay, God, what do you want me to give to your work? But you almost never hear us use the word tithe, and this is why. How much did, of, his, of the spoils did Abraham use for God's glory? Was it 10%? What did he do with the other 90 He said, I don't want to keep it because I'm afraid you will take the glory for it. So for God's glory, I'm turning over the rest of it. How much did Abraham use for God's glory? 100%. So this is what God wants us to do. This is really not even just about finances. He wants us to use, yes, 100% of our finances for God, absolutely. Say, God, this is you, you're the possessor of everything, so you possess all that I own. What do you want me to do with this? You tell me. I want to use it all for your glory, but this is about so much more than that. This is about a broader concept of how we interact with God. It's that Abraham's reaction from seeing this man 
who, the king of righteousness, is to give everything he's got. Let's put it like this. If Grandpa Abraham were here, this is what he'd tell us. You can go ahead and bring up the slide. That was my cue. I'll just read it to you. You know, I think I have it written down here. Okay. If it, oh, there it is. If Abraham were here, he'd tell us, worship is not what we get out of it. It's what we offer. When you're thinking about your interaction with God, that, that's worship. That's our, all of our relationships with God, our interactions with God is worship. He'd say, man, worship is not, what do I get out of it, God? What's my angle? What's the kickback? Worship is not what I get out of it. It's what I'm bringing and offering to you. God, you've given me everything through Jesus. So I'm offering myself back to you. It's like this in Romans 12.1. It says this. I want to read this to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is worship? Worship is me saying, God, all of me is yours. Every sector of my life is yours. My goals, my dreams, my plans, my stuff, my relationships, myself, I am yours. What do you want me to do with it? Today is yours. Tomorrow is yours. All of it is yours. We used to use, the church used to use in generations past, the phrase, um, Sunday is the Lord's day. Maybe you've heard that. It is the Lord's day. That's true. But so is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Every day is the Lord's day. It's all for him. See, this is, can overhaul our view of worship. Now, you may be saying, okay, that's good. I got it. We're kind of picking apart what the word worship means. But you got to understand, I'm not a really worshipy kind of person, okay? When I think of worship, I think of a church service. Or I think of, you know, being on top of a, a mountain in Tibet at a monastery. And someone's doing Tai Chi, okay? And someone's ringing a Tibetan sound bowl that's reverberating through the mountains, okay? That's what I think of when I think of worship. You say, I'm not a worshipy person. I'm just a dude. I wake up every day. I got bills to pay. I got a, a job I'm trying to make happen or a career. I've got relationships I'm working on. And, and this one relationship's kooky. I'm kind of stressed out about that today. And I've got this over here. And I've got kids. And I've got this and that. And I, I'm just trying to make it through my life. I, I appreciate splitting hairs about what worship means. But why do I really care about that? Let me give you three reasons why you care. Here's the first one. Humans can't help but worship. You may not think of yourself as a worshipy person, but worship is to humans what breathing is to humans. We are worship machines. Everything we do is worship. You say, I mean, I'm not so sure about that. I know some, some atheists who would disagree. Everyone is worship. What worship is, is whatever my ultimate good is, I'm a living sacrifice for it. I make sacrifices all through my life for that. So if my ultimate goal is a successful career, I'll make living sacrifices for, man, I'll work hard, I'll work all hours of the day. Man, I might sacrifice vacation days, I might sacrifice my evenings, my mornings, I might sacrifice relationships, all kinds of things I'm sacrificing because my ultimate good, my God, is successful career. I'm a living sacrifice. Maybe your, your ultimate is comfort and pleasure. Uh, maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's a relationship, and so I'm a living sacrifice. Man, I'm doing everything I can to keep this relationship working. It's the obsession of my life. I'm making sacrifice. I've kind of lost touch with that friendship and that friendship, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of changing who I am, and I'm changing this and that. I'm making big sacrifices because that's my ultimate good, that relationship. I'm a living sacrifice to that God. Maybe it's control, and so, man, I'm making sacrifices, making sure everything's in order, and I'm very 
careful and conservative. I save a lot. I make sure all these things are in order and keep control, and that's hurt some of my relationships. And and I could have done more things here or there, but I just got to make sure I've got everything in order. Maybe it's my comfort, so I make sure that I, I, I invest in the things. And man, I spend a lot of money getting the thing, the nice things that I like and the, the things that make me feel good because, man, my God is my comfort. And so I'm, I'm a living sacrifice to that. You see, we can't help but worship. We're worshiping beings. We worship machines. But here's the second thing. Our life boils down to worship. How good your week was last week? has to do with your worship interaction with you and your God. How, things, how, how good this season of life is depends on how your relationship is going between you and your God. So if career and success is your God, man, if things are moving towards success, then you're like, okay, good week. If I've gotten some promotions, I've been, I've been doing things that have been going well, then I'm like, okay, man, this is a good season. I'm happy. I, I'm joyful. If security is your God, well, are things safe or am I worried or are things uncertain? Well, if that's your God, then how your week has gone, your life has boiled down to your worship relationship between you and your God. But here's the third reason why you care about worship. Because one day God will hold all of us accountable for how we worship. We'll stand before the God who's the possessor of heaven and earth. This is the God who has solar systems on his fingertips. And we will give an account before God. Everyone else, I mean, imagine this, you and me. We'll stand before God and give an account for how we worship. Did I give 100% of my life to him? Did I say, God, every breathing moment is worship to you all of my life. Every day I wake up, God, my life is yours. What you send, I'm not going to stress about circumstances. What you send, I'm just going to react how you want me to react. I'm going to live the way you want me to react. I'm going to handle my life the way you want me to handle it. And we will give an account for how we worship before God. See, this is, in here, this is the easy place to worship. It's easy to worship in here. It's tough tomorrow morning when we wake up and live a life of worship. That's what's hard. It's hard to give every day, every moment, every goal, and give that over to the Lord 100% in reaction to what he's done for us, to give it all to God. That's tough. But I want to just talk about the worship here in this room because it's kind of a test case for the rest of our lives, and some of the things that can be revealed in how we worship here can show patterns in the rest of our lives. This is the easy place to worship. But let, let's talk about it, because if we're not careful, we can do a lot of religious activities and not really have done any worship. We can make it all about, what am I getting out of it? And not about, I'm here for you. And if we're not careful, we can become what C.S. Lewis calls um, church connoisseurs. Let me give you an example. My, my daughter is... Um, about to turn two. Her name is Scarlett, and uh, she's getting more and more verbal. And she's become a chicken nugget connoisseur. And so it'll be time to eat, and she'll go, nugget, nugget. And I'll say, Scarlett, would you like a chicken nugget? And she'll go, please. I'll say, okay. And so we'll give her chicken nuggets. Now there's nuggets that she likes, and there's nuggets that are, are okay, and there's nuggets she will refuse. The nuggets that she likes the best are the nuggets probably most of us like the best. They're the nuggets from Chick-fil-A. Okay, clearly the best. She's got good taste. But she'll only have the original. She doesn't want the grilled version. We try and give her the grilled one. They're probably more healthy. She does not want those. She will not eat those. Uh, there's some nuggets she, she likes. There's some that she'll be like, no nugget, no nugget. She's really worried. She doesn't want that nugget. Um, sometimes she'll realize it halfway through eating a nugget, and then she'll spit it back out, and there's a nugget pile now on the table. 
There have been uh, timeouts because of uh, no eating of nuggets. Okay, there's been nugget timeouts. Okay, there's, um, actually there was once we took her to Payway and got some chicken and told her it was a nugget, and there was a nugget sit-in. 45 minutes, there was just, there was a battle right there in Payway. She is a nugget connoisseur. Now here's what can happen. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. If the devil can't keep you from attending church, he will turn you into a church connoisseur. What's wrong with that? Here's what he says. It's like this. If I go to church and it's all what I get out of it, then I will judge my worship experience based on how it aligned to my preferences. So if my worship here when we come together, this is the easiest place to worship. It's all about what I get out of it. It'll look like this. Well, I I go to church when it fits me, man. I I go to church when it's for me to get something out of it. So I go when it's convenient for me. So man, it's just been a rough week or busy season or I'm tired or, you know, the, the, the kids, I mean, the stars have to align to get my kids out of the door. So if we can make all that happen and, oh, there's four drops of rain, forget it, I can't go. You know, everything has to work perfect. If it's, if it's about me and what I get out of it, that's what it will look like. That's my perspective on coming and worshiping God. But if it's for God, I come here and say, God, I'm here for you. It's the music. I get to, to uh, church and I, uh, the church service and I sit in on the music. And if it's what I get out of it, then I'm waiting. Are they going to play that one song that I like? They did that one song that I really like, but Man, sometimes they play that other song, and it's just, it's too loud, it's too fast, there's too much drums, there's not enough electric guitar, and we did that hymn once that I really liked, I wish we did that, there's too many lights, too little lights, I wish we didn't do that, I wish we'd do more singing, less singing, we can go around and around, and it, it doesn't matter. It's not what I get out of it. It's not like, oh, I like this song, I will now sing. That's not what it is. I'm here for God. So it doesn't matter if we do Gregorian chants, or you do some kind of experimental electronic music with a laser light show, it doesn't matter. I'm here for God. I will sing to God. I'm here to hear the words and sing them out for his ears. I'm here for God. Maybe you're, you're serving and you're on the parking team and you loved being on the parking team in February. <laughs> People were coming in. It was beautiful out. You're waving. They're waving back. Now it's July. Like, why did I ever sign up for the parking team? I'm drenched with sweat. People are not waving to me anymore. I'm offended. Why are you doing it? It's for God. In February, it was because it was nice out. Now it's for God. Serving is for God. It's not about what I get out of it. It's my response to God. I offer it back to God. Every part of our experience, when we come together, it's God, I'm here for you. And here's the crazy paradox. When we come here for him and we say, this is experience I'm doing for you, God, we get far more out of it than we ever dreamed. That's the paradox. See, here's this beautiful passage. It's a beautiful story. It, It can overhaul our entire view of our relationship with God. Your time, your, your time you set aside for God, maybe set aside time in the morning. There's gonna be some mornings that just blow your mind. You're like, God, you spoke to me. Man, I just, I feel connected to you. There's other mornings you're like, man, I didn't understand anything I just read. But it's for God. And when it's for God, you'll get far more out of it than you've ever gotten. Your community group, men's ministry, women's ministry, if it's just, man, I'm going for what I get out of it, then you'll go when it's convenient for you, when your schedule uh, gets a little lighter, which will never happen, by the way. But if it's for God, then know it. I'm going, God, what do you want to do? God, I'm, I'm showing up. And as we're gathering together as a church, 
in whatever environment, I'm here for what do you want to say to me? I'm just going to listen. And if I get it, great. But I'm here for you. Because if we get that mentality here, we have to have that mentality here because we need this time together to prepare us for when it's really difficult to worship. And that's every day of our lives saying, my life is for you 100% God. Now you might be here this morning and say, man, that's not my life. I'm living for myself. And if, man, if I was standing before God right now, I'd, I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified because I'm standing before the one who's the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. He's the, the almighty being. He holds the universe in his hand. And I will stand before him and give an account. Man, I'm in trouble. And all of us are in trouble. But God says, I'm offering you a mediator, the high priest, not just for one generation, the high priest forever. And he made a sacrifice that was holy and acceptable to God. He died on the cross. Jesus Christ shed his blood. His body was broken. And God said, that sacrifice I will count as payment for your sins. You can just accept that today. That's all he asks. As you put your faith and say, yes, Jesus, it's your death and resurrection. It's you that saves me. It's that sacrifice that is what saves me. And you can put your faith in Jesus today. Is that you? I want to lead you in a prayer, if that's you, to accept that salvation this morning. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? That's you. I want you to just right there in the quietness of your own seat, just pray this prayer right there. Just between you and God, just say, God, thank you. Thank you for providing a way because, God, I don't deserve. I don't deserve your acceptance. I know that I owe you a life of worship. And sometimes I just live for myself, but thank you for providing Jesus. I want to begin that life of worship now. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.